why you do what you do is what doesn't go away, right? The the fact that these missions and and even and even if you aren't supporting a mission directly, but that what our purpose there was to return exploration information for all of humankind, that is that is a thread that was rewarding every single day. This is the Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. At 14, Nagi Cox knew that she wanted to be a space explorer, but being an astronaut was not her main goal. Keenly aware that the true early explorers were robots, Nagi focused her energy on becoming an engineer with a dream at working at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So how does an Indian girl from Kansas find her way to being a systems engineer at NASA? With a lot of hard work, perseverance, and a can-do attitude. We recently had an opportunity to speak with Nagi about her road to JPL working remotely on Mars, how technology is changing her work, and finding a balance between her personal and professional life. Here's our conversation with Nagi Cox. So Nagi, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, growing up in Kansas City. What were you like as a kid? What was it like, like growing up there? Oh gosh, Marina! You know I haven't thought about uh, uh, about that aspect for a while, and and so I was born in India, mm-hmm. and I spent the first year of my life in India, and then came back. My parents were all, already here, and uh, we and I grew up primarily in Kansas City, but also in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and. Growing up in Kansas City, I mean, you know, people now have this impression of, you know, it's a perhaps because it's kind of in the middle of the Midwest, maybe it's, you know, a little bit more uh it's not it's not quite as sophisticated as some of the other cities on on the East Coast, but you know, East and West Coast. But of course, you know as a kid, none of that occurs to you, right? You just think about your friends and your family and going to the swimming pool in the summer and and school. And so I think it was just a it was just very normal feeling. It was a, it was a, you know, middle-class upbringing in a suburban house. And, you know, back then life was about school and playing and then playing outside in the summer and riding your bike to the pool. And, and there were, there were in some ways fewer choices for what you spent your time doing because there it, it was it was prior to a lot all of the uh, the electronic options that we have now and and i wanted to ask because i know that you know you're so you're an immigrant and you you also come from a, a background where there's a distinct um uh expectation of what boys and girls are going to do with their careers. And the same with my family. We're, I'm also an immigrant. My parents had a very clear idea of what the ladies, the girls should do. <laughs> and you really bucked that trend. Can you talk a little bit about that? That That is a, a, a good characterization of it in the fact that, you know, it wasn't that my, my uh father set out to be like, oh, boys do this and girls do this, right? It was just, it was just more of the cultural norm at the time. And I was surprised by that because I didn't I didn't I didn't know why there would be a distinction. And 
in so many ways, it was that early experience with the ways we separate ourselves that that actually has has impacted you know my path from then on, and I. I saw that we were separating ourselves and even just within my household. And I, and I really wanted to do something and be involved in something that brought people together. And that, that was, had, had a goal that was beneficial, not just to your family or your city or even your country, but something that, that truly benefited all humankind um, that sounds very melodramatic, but you know how teenagers are, right? That I was that melodramatic, um, <laughs> with, with looking for something that would help me navigate a, a, a kind of a difficult, a difficult time for me in, in my upbringing in that it was a little hard to understand why I was kind of embroiled in this, in this, um, you know, struggle to, 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 for it to be okay to go down the path I was going down. But my, my mother was very supportive. And of course that made all the difference, right? She would, she would whisper, you can do anything you want to do. Right. And, and, and it only takes one person to support another. And in my case, it was my mom. And so when did you, this, like, when did you start getting this idea? Like, when did you figure out what you wanted to be when you grew up? Like we asked, we asked kids and they're, you know, there's always a, like a list of typical answers, but was your answer, I want to be an astronaut? Was that ever? It wasn't that I wanted to be an astronaut. It was actually more specific than that in that I knew when I was 14 that I wanted to work where I work now, which is NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And and that was because I knew I wanted to work in the space program, but more specifically, I wanted to work on robotic space exploration. But I mean, when we're talking about, you know, the early 80s, right? I mean, was was were robotics really a big thing at the time? Like, how do you even know that that's something that you can do and want to do? That you know, that's such a good question. And it was, and you're right that what was much more common then was, you know, kids wanting to be an astronaut, right? And and again, I came from the perspective of. I saw how the late Apollo missions and early space shuttle missions were really bringing people together. And I thought, that's what I want to do. And right about then is when Cosmos was on, right? So I, I was introduced to some of this also a little bit through Star Trek, as were so many of my colleagues. And, you know, watching Star Trek, you saw how how multiracial and inclusive and there were women on the bridge and, and, and Star Trek was very ahead of its time in terms terms of how how it portrayed the diversity of uh, genders, nationalities that, that would be involved in space exploration. But beyond that, there was also uh, the original Cosmos with Carl Sagan was on on Sunday nights. And I remember that. And his show focused very much on the wonderful, incredible images that we were getting back from planetary exploration missions that were being done by robots. And, you know, that were before we send people, we send robots. And so every Sunday night, I saw these in, incredible images of exploration that were out of reach of the astronauts of the time. And I thought, boy, if you really want to do 
brand new exploration, that would be the robotic exploration. They go places we've never seen before. And at the time, there was one major location that was involved in this robotic exploration, which was the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. I mean, nowadays, there are many more places that one can go, uh, can work at to be involved in this kind of uh, this kind of exploration, but at the time it was primarily JPL. So that's where I wanted to work. So at 14, you have this plan, you have this idea. How do you even start to put together like a game plan on how do you, how to achieve your dream? So that thought, you know, again, you're right that teenagers are kind of like, okay, I want to do this. And then they're like, okay, how do I do that? Right. And, and at the end of Cosmos, On Sunday night, it would say Carl Sagan, Cornell University. And he talked a lot about Cornell and how it was involved in this exploration. And so I thought, okay, I'll try to go to Cornell University, right? And uh, so that was the rather unsophisticated way that that I thought that, you know, that's where I wanted to go. And the more I researched Cornell. And of course, back then it was like you went to the library and you got a book and you looked up Cornell University, right? There was no internet. There were no images. Uh, And the more I read about Cornell and what an international population it had and how it had, you know, an incredible engineering program, but also a very good arts and sciences program and how diverse it, it, it was and is that I really started to think kind of sight unseen I think this is the place I want to go. Um, But there weren't a lot of other students that, that had been, that had gone to Cornell or had Cornell in them in mind because it, you know, I was in Kansas and Cornell was in New York. And so it wasn't a very typical destination, um, you know, along the lines of, you know, it was Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Cornell, Stanford, the Ivy league, but it, but it wasn't one of the most familiar Ivies. Um, So, you know, Harvard, Yale or something that other young, uh, young uh, students might be interested in going to. So it was a little bit unusual as a target school. And then I had to think through, you know, how was I going to pay for college? Um, Because the the financial resources in the family were, again, devoted more to the boys education than to the girls. And so funding my education, you know, kind of became something that I needed to figure out. And, uh, and so that was, like you said, the next step in the game plan. Okay, I'd like to go to Cornell, but Cornell's expensive. How am I going to do that? Right. And so that was, uh, and, and so I didn't just apply to Cornell. I applied to 14 different colleges. And back then that was a lot because you had to write out every essay by hand and every application by hand. Um, but I knew I needed a, a lot of different financial options um, given that my resources were very limited. And so how did you, what, what was the game plan for, for attending Cornell? Was it, uh, was it a, a grant or, or, or some sort of uh, other uh, financial aid? The the picture for almost any of them was looking at the scholarships, right, and what I got offered, like Rice University um, was very generous in their financial aid, as well as um, 
Northwestern, and and there were schools that were you know interested in kind of a diversity of uh, of backgrounds for their students. You know, I was coming from the Midwest. I was also a woman um, trying to you know going into engineering, but. Certainly, my path to Cornell was was not one that would have materialized had it not been for an a, an unexpected occurrence that allowed me to get an Air Force scholarship. You know, as an adult, you look back on your on your life and you can see the moments that that changed your life, right? The moment that you, you could, that a dime turned on and that that changed your life. And for me, when, you know, when I went to the library to do my research on, it wasn't like it was easy to find information on NASA JPL at the time, again, but you could find information on the astronauts. And so I was like, well, okay, I'm not really interested in being an astronaut, but this is kind of the information that I can find, you know, pre-internet. And so as I was reading about it, one of the things that registered was that a large amount of the astronauts at the time had military background. And I thought, you know, kind of nothing more about that. I, I filed it away in my my memory, and there was no military background in my family at all, other than you know the far distant past when uh, when my family was in India, but um, certainly no connection to the U.S. military. And so then, you know, I, I went about the process of applying for different colleges and trying to get financial aid packages and, and just see what would come my way. And then one day I took a shortcut through the back part of the high school and crossed the back parking lot. And and literally this changed the course of my life because in the back parking lot, there was a trailer and on it, it said U.S. Air Force. It was an Air Force recruiting trailer. And I, rem- I remember I looked up at it and I remembered what I'd read in the library and I thought, U.S. Air Force, huh? And, you know, and I knew nothing of what I was getting into. And I and I still have a clear memory of I walked up the stairs and I opened the door to the trailer and I kind of stood in the doorway. It was a, you know, very small trailer. And then, and I, and they said, hello. And, you know, and I said, hello. And they said, would you like to go to college? And I said, yes, but I don't have any money. And they said, what's your grade point average? And I said, straight A's 4.0. And they said, have a seat. (laughs) And that is exactly how that happened. I didn't know that military scholarships existed. And, and so, you know, there are so many things that as an adult, you can look back on and thank your parents for, right? Because even though, you know, there were, there were struggles with my dad, I still lived in a nice part of Kansas City where there were good schools, right? And it was a school, my high school was one that, you know, expected you to do well in high school and go off to college and, and so that high school had a U.S. Air Force recruiting trailer in its back parking lot, because without that, that would never, that just wouldn't have happened to me. And so it was a, a fortunate happenstance that was enabled by my parents' choices that allowed me to, to have that unexpected encounter that resulted in an Air Force ROTC scholarship 
that I attended Cornell on and then went into the Air Force and really enjoyed my time in the Air Force. All from that one moment. <laughs> that walk that across the parking lot. I love it. I love it. Was there ever a backup plan? Did you even consider a backup plan? Yes, uh, because that's kind of my nature. <laughs> so there definitely was a backup plan. It, and it was those other 13 college applications, because if I didn't get the Air Force scholarship, then I, I would have needed to choose um, one of the other schools that that offered me, that, you know, came up with a financial aid package that I could do. I'm curious because, I mean, you touched a little bit on it. You know, you were going into an engineering, you're coming from the Midwest. So th there were some things that were kind of in your benefit. But I, I can't help but also think that um, you're a woman going into a field that is severely underrepresented. I think it's maybe a little bit better now, but I can only imagine that there probably weren't a lot of women studying engineering uh, in the early 80s. Um, and then to boot, you're a woman of color. How... How difficult, like, was there ever a point where y you felt that maybe you were in the wrong place or that, um, like, what was that, the challenges of that experience? I can only imagine. There, there were many moments, you know, I mean, I think all, all young students are kind of like, what am I doing here? You know, especially when you start out doing well in high school and then, you know, all of the students that are, are doing well in high school, we all arrive at a college where now we're little fish in a big pond, right? And, and so for me, it started in that, First of all, not only were there not a lot of young women in engineering, but there also, you know, I, I, there was a big minority. Women were a minority in the Air Force ROTC program. The When I went to college, they had only started admitting women to the Air Force Academy something like 10 years earlier, right? So the Air Force Academy and, and the military academies and ROTC were all really out there trying to find women to encourage um, to, to enroll in the academies and the military programs. I had a particular, dis, you know, it just, it worked out very well because in the end, it came down to a choice for me between the Air Force Academy and Cornell University. And, you know, given that I kind of just come from an environment where I was being like told what to do, <laughs> I was not so inclined to go to the academy where I was then again going to get told what to do extensively for four years. And so I wanted the more traditional uh, college environment. So I, I chose to go to Cornell. But what I didn't know then was that, you know, I was not at all in the right physical shape to have gone to the Air Force Academy because sports were was not an option for me in my culture, right? I, I didn't have the option of doing sports or even a lot of exercise. Well, I mean, you know, kids run around. And so obviously I was, uh, I was active, but I didn't have any sports background. And so fortunately, when I got to Cornell, the ROTC program took a look at me and oh, and went, oh, <laughs> we have work to do here. And I worked really hard in the two years before I went to boot camp to get into shape, right? And so there was time to to uh, kind of make me Air Force material. But certainly at the beginning, I thought, 
uh huh. I don't have the background that some of these. I don't have the cultural background that some of my some of my compatriots in Air Force ROTC did, where I, I was not at all. I didn't have a military background. My family had no you know connections to it. I wasn't in good shape. I. So, but, but like you do when you're a kid, especially when you have a scholarship and you're staying at Cornell depends on getting your act together. You know, I threw myself into the, uh, into getting into shape. And of course, you know, when you're 18 and you decide to get into shape, you actually can. And, <laughs> and so I, I got into shape. Um, I also was, uh, I decided to do a dual degree in psychology and engineering, which was a lot to take on given the demands of engineering. Um, and I, I'm very glad that I did do a dual degree. And, and and part of that was because it was important to have something to balance the engineering. The math and science was very hard for me at in college. It was very hard, right? I did fine in high school and then at an, you know, at a, a with a program as demanding as at, as Cornell's, engineering was hard. And, and yet I knew that I was going to go into the Air Force and then, you know, and serve my country and then eventually try to get to JPL. And so this engineering degree was, again, what my, you know, the scholarship enabled it. But the, I wanted to get that job at JPL. So as hard as engineering was, it was still you know, eventually I got a master's degree as well. And we're still talking about six years of schooling that then prepare you for your dream job, which you get for the rest of your life. Right. And so it totally seemed like a fair trade to me to work super hard in college so that I could get this job later. And I'm still, you know, infinitely glad that I made it through. Can we talk a little bit? I'm actually kind of curious about, the, you know, getting into shape for the military. <laughs> what exactly did this entail for you? Well, there were, you know, there were uh, the first thing was that, you know, you needed to be able to run two miles in a certain amount of time. Well, I had had no particular reason to run two miles, <laughs> you know, when they're like, OK, go run around this track you know, your, your, um, response to that as a kid is, okay, I'll go run around this track. And the problem was I couldn't run far enough and nor could I run fast enough. And so my time was not at all what it should have been. And, and so from there it went to, okay, now just like anybody else, you know, you need to run every day. And this was upstate New York. So it was cold. So, you know, it meant you had to come to the gym or the track, the, the ROTC building had a track and it was, you need to come to the track and run every day and improve your time. And that's very much um, what I was doing. And so then it was also, well, you had to be in a, you know, a different fit. It was not just running. It was also that you had to be able to do a certain amount of sit-ups and a certain amount of push-ups. And, and again, it was, there was a physical fitness test that I needed to be able to pass. And, and uh, again, it was, it was not hard to do as an 18 year old, especially given that I had coaches right? In the sense that there were Air Force ROTC instructors that, um, 
that that were helping all of us get into shape. I just had further to go <laughs> than some of the other um, students did. I'm I'm curious if that the physical activity was also a good uh, sort of balance for that engineering that was so mentally straining. Was it? Did you find that being physically active on a regular basis was helpful to help you unwind? I, I did indeed, in the sense that it, you know, it's it's as they say, it's whatever will take your mind off the problem at hand, right? And so while exercising and, you know, and really trying to beat the clock and running and trying to get in physical shape, that was, that was using a very different part of me, right? It was using my body in a very active way. And so certainly that, that was a a great um, complement to all of the studying that I was doing for engineering. But the, the aspect of, you know, even now at, at, uh, at the NASA center where I work, JPL, there is, one of the things that that we a lot of us have in common is that the engineers tend to have a strong second interest right whether it's composing music or you know the music happens to be a common one it's something that is that uses a different part of your brain and is is kind of very different than what you do at work so that your brain can kind of continue to work on the problem that you're trying to solve in the background while you're doing something else and and for me the psychology not only was the ROTC and the Air Force and my friends and the social aspects but also psychology the psychology degree while it was difficult to get two degrees that was also a very big balance because you know here i am studying numbers and equations and science and thermodynamics and all of that and then i would go from there into a class about personality or child psychology or and 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 so again that was also a good pivot for my mind so it you can you can find balance not just through physical activity but also something that just engages a different part of your brain or a different part of your you know soul the way music does or or something like that so for you, what is your secondary hobby? What is your secondary thing that you do? Well, I would say now that, and it goes back to the early days, my strong second interest is in women's rights. And the so the, the philanthropic side of my life, like we all have kind of our personal lives, our professional lives, and then our volunteer lives. And for me, my volunteer life has focused heavily on on you know participating the way i can in the the global battle for equality and fair treatment and um you know there's a lot of things that still are are there's a lot of violence against women in the entire world and that is something that especially with my upbringing i it was almost the path not taken Right. That I, I, I firmly believe that if I had not gone down the path of working for the space program to try to bring people together, that I then would have gone down the path of really working to to be a part of this 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 global effort to ensure that women are treated as equal sentient beings um, to men 
And and given that my professional life is now in the space program, I definitely still feel like I need to be a part of that that battle, right? Which is happening. And so I've found the two different ways that, you know, I can contribute at a local level with women's self-defense programs that I'm part of the assistant staff in a women's self-defense program that, you know, teaches 16 women at a time how to um, be empowered in in self-defense. And then at a global level, there's an organization, uh, Human Rights Watch, that I respect immensely. And and the the work they do to, uh, you know, not just for all human rights, but especially for women's rights. And so being involved in that organization, as well as other organizations that are empowering to women, is kind of what I devote my volunteer life to. And And it just feels like it's it, you know, it's something I'm fortunate, right? I, I had, I had an, despite the, you know, the, the ups and downs of my upbringing, I'm still someplace that res- where, where fundamentally as a country, you know, I have equal rights as a woman in terms of property and, and, and protection. And, and, and that's not true in other parts of the world. And, and so I had to be a part of, trying to right this global wrong in the way women are treated. I wanted to go back then and, and talk. To, we I sort of jumped ahead a little bit, but I wanted to go back and talk a little bit about, so you're at Cornell, you're, you're, you're graduating. What's next? Ah, so when I graduated from Cornell, Cornell, I was committed to um, uh, serving in the U.S. Air Force because I'd been fortunate enough to get a scholarship. So I was committed to four years in the Air Force, and I ended up staying six because I, I so enjoyed it. So I served at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And, you know, even then, there was a bit of a one-track mind. So even though I started off in kind of air crew training systems, I rapidly went and got a degree from the Air Force Institute of Technology in space operations, which is like space systems engineering, and then um, served at Cheyenne Mountain Air Force Base in Colorado Springs in space operations. So again, the the you know the theme of uh, space of uh, space operations, and so when the time came after I'd been in for four years, you know, I just I really valued the I, I really enjoyed serving. You know, duty on our country, all of that is is very. Uh, very powerful. And I felt very appreciative. You know, I'm still a a huge patriot. Again, very appreciative of the country that I was able to emigrate to. And uh, so as and I stayed in the reserves until it became kind of incompatible with my, um, my uh, uh, jobs with spacecraft that were at Jupiter and Mars. And so I kind of had to pick a planet at some point, right. And so I couldn't uh, keep doing Air Force reserves, but but I, I still and I'm just very glad to have had the opportunity to serve. And then eventually I said, as much as I as I enjoy serving my country, this the military space program has a different focus than the NASA civilian space, uh, space agency's focus on exploration. And so I said, yeah, this is great, but I got to take a chance and um, try to get to JPL. You know, and at that time, my mother was like, but 
but but you you have a job that you like in the air force and you're doing well and it's space related you know do 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 we really do we really think it's a good idea to kind of you know, let all that go for the possibility of getting to JPL, right? <laughs> because of course she wanted me to be happy and secure. And, and so that gave her pause. Um, uh, but I did end up taking the risk of leaving the Air Force and trying to get to JPL. So that was going to be my next question. Did you start applying for to JPL while you were still at the Air Force? Or was, did that come after? So can you talk a little bit about the path from, you know, you leave the Air Force to now your goal is JPL. How do you even start to get there? I, I actually thought it might take years. I thought, you know, it could take me 15 years to get to JPL, but someday I will. And it actually ended up taking me less than a year. And initially, because I'd gone from college to the military, I didn't have a lot of experience in applying for jobs, right? So when it came time, as I was leaving the Air Force, I applied to JPL, you know, and I did it kind of through again, this was you know pre-internet, et cetera, uh, or the internet was kind of just starting up, and so I applied to the you know the front door. You send your resume to Human Resources, and uh, you know got resounding silence, right? And, you know nothing. And I was like, oh, okay, uh, let me <laughs> let me learn more about how you're actually supposed to apply for jobs, right? And so I didn't get into JPL in that round. Um, uh, but I did, I went to work for IBM and that was in San Jose, California, and they had a, a space systems um, division there. And so I knew that my experience in the military was going to be of value to them. And so given the fact that I was prepared for it to take a while, you know, to, 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 to get the qualifications to get to JPL that I thought, okay, this makes sense. I have something to offer this company, which is my military experience that I just had, but they also had a branch in Houston. Right. And so I said, oh, okay, can I, uh, how about it? And so they were interested in having me come work for them. And so the kind of deal I struck was, okay, so I'll work for a couple of years in the military space space system side of IBM, but then can y'all transfer me to Houston where I can then start getting experience that's relevant to the NASA program and, you know, maybe then eventually get back here to, to JPL. And, and so that seemed like a reasonable trade where I was offering something and they could, you know, help me make the connection uh, in a few years once I, you know, hopefully done a good job in, on the military space system side. And, uh, and then what happened was that, company that they closed their branch in Houston. And, and I was like, rut row, you know, <laughs> that, the, oh, you know, that wasn't part of the plan. And, and uh, so then uh, I obviously continued to, to try to do a good job where I was, but then started looking for other paths, having learned that just kind of trying to get into the front door at JPL might not work. By this time, I, I was out of the Air Force and knew more about how to kind of make connections and, and you know, how it always helps if when you apply for a job, you're not just a piece of paper, but there's someone advocating for you or someone who knows you that, that makes you more three-dimensional in the eyes of the people who are doing the hiring, right? Is, oh, you know this person. What can you tell me about them, et cetera? So it turns out that someone I knew from high school was working at JPL and was able to be that advocate um, to their boss for me as opposed to, you know, here's a piece of paper that came in with someone's resume. 
So when you started at JPL, what 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 did you start doing when you were there? Because I'm sure you didn't walk in the door and all of a sudden you were leading anything. So Absolutely. <laughs> I started out. I was one of the I was one of the first people hired in my group that wasn't a programmer, and because this group was responsible for the communication between the spacecraft. Uh, between the operations team and the spacecraft, and some of that operations has uh, is how we interface with our deep space network, the antenna, the antennas that that send the signals to and from these other planets, and and so there was a group that kind of specialized in that, but most of the people in the group were were software developers. And they had apparently been discussing, you know, how they needed someone more customer facing, more user, someone who had more operations experience as a user and, 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 and didn't have the background of a software developer. And I had just come from that environment in uh, the Air Force. And so I had user, I had space ops background, I had user background, and I had someone who was advocating for me. And so they gave me um, this opportunity. And, and of course, when I started, you know, I was just so awestruck to be, to, you know, the day I walked through the gates, right? It, to, 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 to have a, to get what you, to be where you wanted to be your whole life, right? And then to walk through the gates, it, nothing could diminish my, how overjoyed I was to be at JPL, right? Everything was interesting to me. Every mission, every person, every building, right? Every, everything you saw on the walls, right? I'd suddenly walked into a world where where the words Mars and Jupiter and spacecraft and galaxies and stars and, and rockets were just the language of the day, right? I would, I would call up my husband who was at the time, uh, you know, we were long distance because I'd gotten this job at JPL. And I would say, I said the word Jupiter five times today at work and it was actually part of my job to say those words it was it was incredible it was incredible and it still is and i understand you still drive through the main gate every single day don't you i do i do you know it's not like over 20 years later it's not like every day is happy 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 right but every day is still rewarding. We all have days at work where, you know, you're maybe you're doing paperwork and you're like, really, you know, or you're, you're in a meeting that, that is, seems interminable. I mean, that's true wherever you work, but why you do what you do is what doesn't go away, right? The, the fact that these missions and and even and even if you aren't supporting a mission directly but that what our purpose there was to return exploration information for all of humankind that is that is a thread that was rewarding every single day so i, I mean i think the 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 two emotions that i have felt literally every day for 20 years has been gratitude 
to be at JPL, to have this amazing opportunity to, because I know that there are so many, you know, men and women around the world that, that would like to be involved in space exploration or whatever their dream is, right? They want to be, whatever it is that people want to be involved in, it is a spectacular gift, a spectacular you know, I mean, how could I feel anything other than gratitude every day for, you know, having a house and living in a country at peace and 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 having a you know having food to eat? And as a woman in this world, I don't have to walk for four hours every day to get water like women in Africa do. I have this job that I can't believe they pay me to do, and a wonderful husband. And it's just. It's just, it's just, it, what, it's what ripples through my day is gratitude, even if the day isn't perfect and you're, you know, have problems with your colleagues or this didn't go well, or the spacecraft is having a problem. It's still the big picture, right? And, and so, yeah, I do drive through the main gate every day to see that NASA JPL sign and, and start my day with gratitude. I think that's such a wonderful, wonderful thing to think about. And one of the things you mentioned that I was going to ask you about, so I'm glad you brought it up, is this idea that not every day is perfect, even if you're doing your dream job. But I mean, you're... The, the the setbacks when you're working at your level where, you know, everybody is watching, the world is literally watching everything that's happening. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you and your team deal with setbacks and and, and problems? And, you know, it, it's one thing to, to, on a day-to-day basis to have issues where, you know, no one else is looking, so it's fine. But when everyone is watching all the time, how, how do you even deal with that? You're right that there are setbacks of different levels, right? There are days when, just like any job, again, you might be, you might be, you know, struggling to be heard or understood with colleagues, or you want to make sure someone else's workday is going well. But those are normal kind of workplace environment things. When you are responsible as a team for a taxpayer investment in a spacecraft that's $500 million or more than that, right? You, your, your work matters in a way that you're, you're, you have a responsibility to the people who have given some of their hard-earned money, their taxes, to pay for these missions of exploration. They become a part these spacecraft, when you work on them for years, they become a part of your family. They're not machines. They are robotic emissaries that we devote our lives to. And when a mission fails, it's, I remember, you know, I, I went through my first failure when I had been at JPL for less than six months. And one of the missions that the I, I I personally did not work on it, but one of the missions that was in operation at the time did not make it to Mars. And I watched the lab convulse, like convulse in agony. And that was the moment that I understood that 
what this was going to mean. I had only been on lab, only been, and, and you know, that's a, actually it wasn't six months, sorry, it was six weeks. I had only been on lab for six weeks and it hurt. It hurt me. And I didn't work closely on the project and I just got into the lab. But I saw the way the way these robotic emissaries come to matter to people. There were grief counselors that were, there was count, you know, and I saw the lab kick into gear to support the engineers and scientists. There were, there was grief counseling. There were, there, there were a lot of psychological resources deployed. Those who didn't work on the missions were available. You know, everybody was like, I'm sorry, you know, I'm, I'm not going to make it in time for this meeting. My friend worked on this mission and I need to take her to lunch or whatever it was to support. And, and, and that was my first experience with how, how failure isn't, isn't, is something you learn from. I mean, we always dusted ourselves off, picked ourselves up and continued with the Mars missions and learned from it, but not without feeling the pain of loss. Right. And so there was, uh, you know, the hopes and dreams and the work in these spacecraft and, and then you, you, you start again, you learn from what happens. Sometimes it's Mars. I mean, two out of three missions to Mars failed. Right. And then, and so you let yourself grieve for the loss of this robotic emissary that you devoted life part of your life to that became a part of your family that you would you know in operations i would walk outside when i was working on the galileo spacecraft and the spacecraft you know was in a radiation environment and so it just had problem after problem because it was in such a harsh radiation environment and i would go outside and i would look up and i would talk to my spacecraft right from the earth i would say what's wrong tell me you know we were you know and you just it's not it's anthropomorphizing them but it's because we built them we try to understand how they think and then we send them off into the night never to be seen again with our own eyes and when you lose a spacecraft you feel the responsibility from so many different angles and and it's it's hard it's hard because these these missions matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think it was um, helpful to you to to experience that loss so early on in your career at JPL? I think it was because I saw firsthand how these missions matter to the engineers and scientists that work on them, and I was braced um, for when that happened to me again. Uh, there was another mission that I was asked to join just eight weeks before it attempted a landing on Mars, um, just because they needed help in the last minute. I was still on Galileo, and they pulled some of us over to go work on this mission. And I and I knew it was risky. And that mission I did work on for eight Mondays, eight Mondays before landing. And it, when it did not land successfully. Um, we were uh, uh, partners with um, 
a academic, uh, the, our, our partners in operations were at UCLA. And so th- a number of us went out to UCLA to help UCLA get ready. And I couldn't go back for a year. Like I could not drive back by that building. And I had only been on the mission for eight Mondays and it was just too painful. And, but I knew that that might happen. And it also creates empathy for other industries where this happens. I, I had a, uh, you know, this may be too long a story, but I was in Ireland um, speaking on Mars exploration for the State Department. And, you know, we've all heard the story. I was in Belfast and we've all, we all know the story of the Titanic, right? And the loss of life and the people who, uh, you know, who perished in the, the, the Titanic, in the, the loss of the Titanic. But when I went to Belfast, I found myself at the the Museum of the Titanic, and it was where the ship was built. And as I walked through the exhibits, I started, you know, my, my heart started to clench. I started to kind of physically fold inward. My shoulders hunched over. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm watching. I'm now hearing the story of the engineers that built the Titanic, right? And I started to cry as I went through this museum. And at the end, I saw, you know, the the end of the exhibit was about the Titanic sinking. And, but this time I felt, I felt it from the engineer's point of view, because this was the where the ship had been built. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I've never thought about that. They felt as we felt about our missions. Right. And I went, oh, my gosh, the Titanic builders. We always talk, we always hear the story, of course, the more, you know, the important, the more important story about the loss of human life, but I could suddenly empathize with what the shipbuilders felt. And especially because when their ship sank, there was the loss of human life, right? So there is this thread that connects the, the great, the great endeavors that we do as humans around the planet to build buildings and bridges and and you and and things that allow us to experience the world this world and when those things break and fail the the human cost for the people that tried to build something that would work Right. And and that's not always how we see engineers and architects and scientists as as pouring their heart and soul into a thing that represents them. Mm -hmm. And and not just represents them, but really represents humanity, because in essence, the emissaries, these robotic emissaries are representing us. Absolutely. (laughs) Whatever might be out there. Absolutely. And, and, and you carry the weight of what that mission was supposed to do and bring back to all of humanity. And of course, you start again, but it takes time to rebuild and to do it again. But, you, but failure is 
you know, success is learning from your failures because when you're trying to do something hard, it's not going to work the first time. I mean, look at SpaceX, right? They, they have reminded the world that things go wrong when you're trying to develop a new capability, right? And, and, and so rockets blow up and rockets blow up and you just figure out why and you do it again right? You keep going. You don't let failure stop you because you learn what happened and you continue. This actually ties in really nicely to something else that I wanted to touch on. And perhaps one of the the, the things that you're most famous for, there are many, but perhaps one that's been seen the most by the most people is your, what time is it on Mars uh, talk that you did for TEDx. And one of the things that strikes me about that talk is not just the fact that, you know, you're talking about going to Mars. Um, but the, the, the fact that you bring a humanity to, to, to the people that are basically like doing the, the work that you guys do. And the fact that it's not just those people, it's not just the engineers and the software folks and everybody that's like working there on Mars time, but also their families. It's, 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 it's that collateral as well. Like it's not only the individuals, but their extended family as well. And, and so, I, I thought that, that that talk in particular was really interesting because of that. And you touch on it a little bit now, speaking about how, you know, we don't really think about engineers and the builders as being responsible for um, the things, but they are. They are. And, and as we said, they feel it when it succeeds and you see us jumping up and down, you know, when a mission succeeds and also when it doesn't. And, the families it's absolutely true that that especially that that it it isn't just the the person working on the mission right it's also the families right and when you spend your days on mars one of the things that happens regularly with my husband is I'll just start talking we're just talking about our days and I'll just start talking and he regularly will say honey which planet are we talking about? Right. And so, uh, because sometimes it's Mars, sometimes it's Jupiter, sometimes the earth, and we'll have these conversations where they go on for like, a, a, you know, a few minutes and then, or, or, you know, some amount of time. And, and, and I'll say, oh, no, no, I was talking about Mars. Right. <laughs> and, and so it affects his life as well. Right. And he, and, and my reference point when, um, when we're, you know, when we're out camping or something and, and we'll say, oh, you know, that's a beautiful cloud formation. I'll say, oh yeah. You know, and my reference point is Mars. I'll say, oh yeah, we took a picture of cl clouds like that the other day on Sol 390, whatever. Right. And so, or if we see an amazing rock formation, I'll, I'll reference Mars. So, you know, sometimes we go through these conversations about, do I actually know more about Mars than I do about the earth? And, and and so this happens in our families, right, where we, we talk about being the first generation Martians in the sense that we live on the Earth, but we work remotely on Mars. And, you know, in this day age of working remotely, we work remotely, remotely, uh, you know, on Mars. And and so that's where our mind is. That's where we are projecting ourselves to the rover on Mars. And so we have these days on earth where we're literally just thinking about Mars and then shifting back to our families who are in a different focus and, and literally sometimes on a different 
time. When we first started working from home, you know, I learned that when I was work, I had to like, you know, I was used to being at work in the mission control areas, et cetera. And now here I am in my house on some of the days. And so I had to like shut all the blinds. So I didn't see like green grass and blue sky because that was like very confusing to my brain, right? That I'm, I'm working on Mars. And yet, why am I seeing like, you know, grass outside my window? And so until I got used to working from home, I had to like shut all the blinds. Right. So it was in, so it was like I was in a spaceship or I was on Mars. And, uh, and, and so the, the effects of working remotely on Mars are, are, you know, humorous ones like that of how it affects our family, but also um, just the impact on our families of the demands of the spacecraft, because those don't always conform to, you know, earth life in terms of dinner time, et cetera, right? Your, your phone can go off at any time uh, when you're on call, regardless of what's happening on earth time. Does it get easier to, to work basically on Mars, even after you've been doing it for so long, or is it always a challenge? You know, it's this, it does get easier, but this, this Mars time. So we try to work on Mars time for the first 90 sols of a mission, uh, the first 90 days, a Martian day is slightly longer than an Earth day. And we do that because normally we're all together right and and the science 600 scientists and 300 engineers and there's you know we're all in mission control at at JPL in Pasadena learning when the spacecraft when the rover first lands and we learn to we learn where we are on Mars we learn to work together as a team but while we're doing that we're also shifting in time and that is to try to stay in sync with Mars time and that is very hard on your body clock. It's very hard on your families, but it is a blast because you're with the entire operations team. So this time was definitely a challenge because we'd made all these preparations for us again, literally to be together in mission control. And that never happened. Much of the team stayed remote. And so now we had people working on Mars time who weren't in operations and they're at their homes trying to work in the middle of the night when their family is in the next room. And they they normally would have been at JPL, you know, with everybody else and everybody staying awake and, you know, at least you're with other people. So, so this time was particularly challenging because same thing we were newly on mars a new rover we needed to get to know it and do the initial operations but we weren't together some of us there was a small subset that was at jpl but it was not at all filled with a thousand people you know filled with excitement about this new mission that was definitely one of our biggest challenges this time and at least those of us who've done it before, I kind of had a mental picture of, well, this is what we would have been doing if we were all together. But for some of the young engineers, they'd never experienced Mars time before. And this was a tough way to do it. 
right, was was trying to adjust your body clock without all of the fun stuff of being together in a crazy, you know, uh, a, a, a crazy environment of excitement of the new mission. I'm curious if the shift to work from home was as sudden as it was for other industries at JPL. Did it kind of happen overnight or was it more of a, a progressive thing? It did. So the shift um, to all of JPL going remote, like other organizations, now we've during the early part of the pandemic and even, you know, until now, there have always been certain uh, positions at JPL that are mission critical that have, that have continued to be in person. Um, however, you know, this was before we had launched and like other organizations, it became clear kind of in the last week in February that, that, that NASA, just like other organizations was potentially headed for a, a huge shutdown, right? Where the majority of the workforce, um, was now going to be working from home. And given that, Operating in different environments is what we do, right? When it became clear that that might be what was going to happen to JPL, and there was basically about 10 work days or so where we saw that this might be coming, you know, we were able to quickly jump into action and say, okay, wait a second, if this is going to happen, there was one day where JPL said, you know, before the shutdown, JPL said, everybody stay home today. Just stay home and work from home so we can test our infrastructure quickly, right? And so, you know, people just used their laptops and and did what they could from home so that we had basically a, a dry run. We did a test of everybody staying home. And then we all came in the next day. And then now, since we were still allowed to be in person, we all started trying to figure out, okay, given the weaknesses or lack thereof that we saw of what happens suddenly when 5,000 people are working remotely, we were then able to spend the next few days trying to fix problems that we found. So again, it's like getting ready for doing operations on another planet. You know, you do a test, you fix the problems, you do another test. And so then, so yes, we did have a bit of preparation before suddenly it became, all right, Los Angeles County is shutting down nobody come you know we're all working from home as of today uh and then we we continued to make improvements um as we were now operating remotely which i think is really what the rest everybody in the world did right if you were lucky you had time to quickly run a test otherwise you figured it out as we went Yep. Sink or swim. Yep. Yep. I'm curious about, you know, we're talking a little bit about technology and I'm very curious about, you know, the, the, the rise in uh, certain technologies like uh, VR and AR that sort of lets you experience the world around you in like another dimension. And I, I can't help but think that the work that you do and that you, the other engineers do at JPL, you're kind of doing that. You've been doing that for a long time because you're, you're experiencing another planet through a, a robotic emissary. Can you talk a little bit about whether any of that technology is being used by JPL and how that's being used? It is indeed for, exa- for a, very much the reasons that you said is especially AR, 
right? It, because we have science team members and partners that are literally around the planet. So when we, you know, drive to a new part of Mars or, you know, let's say we drive 100 meters or 200 meters and now we're in a new uh, work area, then inevitably the, okay, we, you know, we saw it from orbit or, you know, maybe on this mission we saw it from the helicopter. But still, here we are in this new little neighborhood on Mars and we need to figure out where are we going to take a sample? What are we going to image? Where, you know, we have limited resources. So what do we want to do with our time in this location? And the discussion about that is something that is really enabled when it's, you know, it's a, when it's collaborative while you're looking at the imagery. So one of the things that AR has really provided is for us to, you know, it's not a full VR, but for us to kind of be immersed in the rover imagery. And so we can be in a an a an a uh, AR setting where not only are we in the room, so to speak, with a rover because we are in an environment in which what's around us is projected rover imagery, but it collaboratively can be the same scene that one of our scientists in France might be seeing. And so from his AR headset and his AR set headset, uh, you know, setup, or, you know, uh, again, a colleague in Canada and from her setup, they can, we all, we can all be in the same scene at once with our avatars and so we can literally walk around in the scene and one scientist will say, well, I think this is the rock that we should focus on and here are the reasons why. And we're literally, not literally, we're in the AR environment looking down at the rock as it's being displayed from the rover imagery. And so we can walk around within the scene and literally be on Mars virtually and have much more productive conversations that are very quick about where do we want to do our do our next um, remote science or, or sampling, and that technology has continued to evolve, uh, not just in 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 AR but also in sim- in programs that aren't full VR AR with the headset, but are again, collaborative views of the scene in front of you. And how do you say, I think I want to go here. So you set a target and then someone else identifies a target. And then you can have conversations about, okay, we can't go to all three. Which one should we pick? Um, so it is, it is, it is a part of our collaboration as much as you would expect it would be for a team that is spread out around the world. And it just continues to get more and more important in our interactions um, because we want everyone to participate and to participate, not just to participate, but to participate in a timely manner, right? We have to get these rover commands ready quickly to send to the rover. So anything that makes us more efficient is uh, is very valuable in, in getting our, uh, you know, making progress in our exploration goals. I'm curious since, I mean, you've been at JPL for like t- going on past 20 years. So you've yeah. seen the technology um, evolve over that period of time. 
I'm curious if you had to pick like one bit of innovation that has affected the way that you do your job the most, what would that be? Certainly the one that that we mentioned, and of course the increasing capabilities on the rovers, um, but our ability to do our job is is always limited by getting data back from Mars or getting data back from the spacecraft. So just like, you know, everything that we value in the internet depends on the internet infrastructure, right? And everything we do in our you know daily lives is enabled by the roads we drive on, right? The infrastructure of getting data from the solar system back to the earth is the key. It's the link because we send these robots, but they can't tell us what happened if we can't get the data back. So the innovations, the two innovations of having a relay system where we have orbiters around Mars that can receive the data from the orbiter, from the rovers and blast it home, right? That That is a huge leap forward in our ability to get data from Mars. But again, it's the ability to listen. So when the Galileo spacecraft back in the 90s had a problem with its antenna and was only able to rely on its low-gain antenna instead of its high-gain antenna, and suddenly we were faced with a mission that had had a problem and still was going to be returning invaluable data from Jupiter, but now it had to come back in, 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 in through a straw instead of a pipe. And to deal with that, there were significant advancements made in how our antennas, our deep space network antennas in, in Australia, Spain, and California were beefed up and improved so that we could get this weak signal from Galileo and still get all this information back. Those improvements that were made out of necessity became the building blocks for our ability now to receive gigabytes of data from these emissaries. And you see that in the pictures and the video and now the microphone recordings. It's all been enabled by our ability to send back more data. Wow. I I wanted to ask you a little bit about sort of your working day, because you do a lot in your working day. And I'm curious, as somebody that has such a full plate, how do you prepare yourself for your day? Do you do you journal? Do you have a to-do list? Do you do that at night? Do, do you do it in the morning? How, how do you sort of prepare yourself for a good day? So, and, and that's a, that's an excellent, you know, thing to think about. I, it varies when I'm doing operation shifts, right? That is different because whether or not it's a, it's a good day depends on what happened on Mars. So in that case, you, it's about preparation for, um, you know, what happened the prior Sol on Mars. What are we planning to do this Sol? And kind of just making sure that even if you've been doing 
um, Earth-based work for the last few days that you reset your brain to what's happening on Mars so that you can respond in real time as things come up. Now, that is a very specific circumstance to those days when I'm on shift in mission control for one of the rovers. For a day that I'm not on shift, kind of a more traditional work day, for me, I do tend to, you know, uh, uh, before I go to sleep, you know, my husband will say, quit it. I can hear you thinking, right? Because I, you know, when he's, he's one of the, in the Navy guys falls asleep immediately, right? Um, when he decides it's time to go to sleep. Whereas I will sit there and think about, okay, what, you know, how I will review today in my mind a little bit, and then I'll think ahead to tomorrow to, okay, what am I going to do? And, and, you know, what time, because, you know, time varies in our job. What time do I need to be at work? And what am I going to, uh, you know, and what am I trying to accomplish? But I think one of the things that when I think about my to-do list that has, that has served me the, served me well is, just acknowledging that we all spend a lot of our time in meetings and and we all and and so there there are times of day when you get some uninterrupted time and that may be early in the morning right at the end of the workday in the evening whenever but the rest of our time we are trying to multitask and so i try to look at my to-do list and I segment it and I say, okay, these are the things that I can do in between meetings, or this is what I'm going to do at lunchtime because I have to make this phone call, right? And so trying to acknowledge that your day is going to be interrupted And then for me, developing the habit of saying, okay, these are the things I do in my quiet time, and here's my quiet time list, and these are the things I can do in the moments in between meetings and and other things that are going on, and then here are the things I will work on if I have like a half an hour, and that's all, or if I have like 15 minutes. So I have found that helps me not be... It helps with having a good day. It helps with not being stressed because you don't demand of yourself that you get these things done that all require intense converse, intense concentration when you don't even have time during that day to do something, when you don't have a big enough block of time of intense concentration. So I look across the week And I go, okay, here are the major things I have to do. Now, these things are really going to take time. And, okay, it looks like Monday morning, I don't have any meetings till 10. And I'm not on shift for the rover. So I actually will plan out, these are the big things that need concentration. Where am I going to do them during the week? And try to be realistic about it. And then say, okay, the rest of these things, which I actually can fit in, in a day, you know, a regular day where there's a lot of multitasking. Okay. And therefore my, when I wake up in the morning, it's rarely, I'm going to do all of these things that take concentration because I know I won't have that kind of uninterrupted time. So I say, okay, today, you know, from my, 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 my seriously need time to block out time, I'm probably, I'm going to do this one thing today. 
but from my other lists, I'm going to do these things. And so that helps me set a realistic expectation as opposed to hoping that I have a day with more uninterrupted time and instead acknowledging that, oh, look, on Friday, I don't have very many meetings. And so that's when I'm going to crank through all this other work. And it, it helps, it helps uh, not feel like at the end of the day, gosh, I didn't get anything on my to-do list done because at least I did get the to-do things that could be done while, while there were multiple things going on because I was realistic about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm curious about where you find time. I can only imagine that you're borrowing time from like another dimension <laughs> because on top of all the work that you do, you're also a speaker. You do all of this volunteer work with, um, you know, the, the United States Department of State. Um, you do talks. As you mentioned, you, you, you volunteer with different organizations. How... I mean, I know that, you know, we say that when you do what you love, it never feels like work. But I mean, at some point, you have to find some downtime for yourself. How do you squeeze this all into your life? I think that, you know, we all, you're right. We all make, absolutely, we all make decisions about what's important to us, you know. And and in my case, you know, I, I, I want to acknowledge the, the, the fact that, you know, I have a, I have a spouse, but we made the decision not to have children. And so that is, um, you know, to acknowledging the parents that do so much, and especially in this pandemic, while they are managing, you know, having young kids or, you know, in my, in my particular case, there was elder care involved, right? In terms of, I really wanted to be, I I really wanted, you know, my mom and I were very close and I, I wanted to be, um, uh, you know, when she moved closer to us, wanted to be there supportive, supporting her. Um, But so there is, there's always the, as we said, there's your, your professional life, your volunteer life, your personal life, that of course includes your family and your parents and your kids um, and your, your social circle. But it's also, it's also about finding what, how can you contribute in a way that is that where the time you're spending is something that, yes, it takes time. You know, we can, if we all, we could all benefit from more time to spend with our family and friends, right? And so I try to look at the list of of other things that I'm involved in and ask myself, you know, we're all lucky if we get 100 years on this planet to, to, to contribute. And so in that 100 years on the planet we hope to have good health and good family and i mean good friends and and rewarding jobs but for those other things that we do it's a trade against your time with your family and and all of these other things and so is what you're contributing by being involved in these other organizations or you know is it is how does that fit with your, you know, what you, what you would like to do if you're granted your hundred years? I am fortunate enough to work on missions that are, that are paid for by the American public. And so it is absolutely part of the responsibility I feel to share what those missions do and to also encourage the, 
the young people in the world, the the students and the 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 new engineers and scientists and and the ones who are thinking about what they want to do, that that you know we have a, there's a lot of challenges facing the world. And we need talent from every, you know, we need all of the talent in the world from, and, and, and good ideas don't stop at borders, right? And so this, we all have a responsibility to say to the, the next generation that we need you and come help solve the problems that, that we need your brain power for. And, you know, this is, uh, and to be a part of, that solution. And if I can share a little bit of the encouragement that I was given to go into this area and and how rewarding I have found it, um, that's worth the time, right? So everything's a trade. And if you look at your life as a whole, right, and actually say, what what am I hoping to do with this time? I find that that helps me make the trades and say, okay, wait, now I'm getting a little overextended, and you know, and 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 so is there is do I need to cut back or just pick the things that matter to you that and and focus on those because you will find the time to that to for that and and yes it's true that you know it doesn't feel like work um but but everything that takes away from time uh, you know from the 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 people that are immediately around you should be a conscious choice about how do we contribute to the planet as a whole as well as being a part of our local communities and families and it's a trade I, I can't help but think, you know, you mentioned that you and your husband decided not to have children, but in a way, you do have children. <laughs> you have children on other planets. <laughs> it is true that how you define a family is so broad now, right, that there's, you know, that, uh, you know, a number of, of folks in my family are teachers. And that has also, you know, they're like, well, I, I may, I, I, I think about it when they decide whether to have children about, you know, is that I, I go to work every day and I have an entire class full, classroom full of children that I am helping to, uh, you know, to educate and shape. And is that, is that, you know, then there's having your own kids. And, and so I think it's, and there's just so many ways to define family now that I think it's, I appreciate your saying that because I do feel like part of what I do is working for the next generation, right? And it's for all the kids of the planet, right? So there are definitely different ways to describe, you know, whether having, of contributing to the next generation, whether that's actually by having your own children or having work that, and, and, and other parts of your life that focus on the next generation, uh, you know, for the entire planet. I'm curious to to kind of wrap things up. Um, if you if you if you could tell your young self one piece of advice that you could give your young self, knowing what you know now, what would that piece of advice be? Well, golly, let's see. Have I thought about that recently? The young self that. You know, they say that youth youth is wasted on the young, right? <laughs> and um, and so it would be 
that it's going to be as just as much fun as you thought it would be. But what advice, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to think about that, that, that there are seasons to life, right? And that when you're young, you think, you think primarily about, you know, the next five years, right? And, and that, and the idea of having like, okay, where am I? I remember when I thought, gosh, what am I going to, I'm going to, what am I going to do when I'm 30? Oh my goodness. You know, what will the world be like? That seems, that seemed so distant, right? And that, that even as you get older, right, your sense of wonder isn't going to change. And, but to appreciate the time in your life when you, when everything is new and when you're at that age where it's all right in front of you, right? Because there will come a time when the, when you have to start thinking about the fact that some of your contributions are now behind you. Right. Have after having been at JPL for 20 years, I'm now at the phase, you know, where I I I I'm unlikely to be at JPL for more than another 20. Right. I'm starting to see the other end of the picture. And that's when you start to think, okay, you can almost begin to see your career as a whole. This is what I did in my first 20 years, and this is what I hope to do in my next 20 years. And so advice that I would give, not just to my younger self, but to any young, you know, person who's starting out is again, to think about your, your professional life as a, as a whole and to see, and and to think about, well, when in that time period might I want to have a family if I'm going to have kids? And how do you want to, no, do do you want to to really focus on your career for the first 10 years and then be more available to your family? Or how are you going to work this, this uh, work-life balance around the projects? And, and that's always something to hard to tell a 20-year-old, right? Or a 25-year-old is, I know you can't conceive about, of it, but there's going to be a time when, you know, you're over 45 and you're over 50. And usually the reaction is, I have no idea what that even means, right? <laughs> I cannot even conceive of that. Um, and so I think the ability to conceive of that. Now, I've, I'm not a procrastinator, so I've always been aware, right, that, that eventually, um, you know, that, that, the, that I will start to be at the point where some of my career is behind me and there are more, you know, and, and, uh, and I can now see the other end. And, and that's, that's a perspective that I think would benefit the young, but, you know, they won't listen. I wouldn't have listened. Right. <laughs> I'm curious, do you have plans for what you're going to do when you retire? I can't imagine you not being somehow involved with space exploration. You know, that's a very interesting thought. And oh, I did I did think of one thing that is very um minor, but what I actually heard this piece of advice from a colleague that was about 
20, no, about 15 years older than me. And what he said was, you know, he said, I wish someone had told me when I was in my 30s to maybe go a little easier on the extreme exercise, you know, and maybe stick with always exercising, but exercise in moderation because every injury you get, you know, in your 20s and 30s and 40s, you'll come back and feel in your 60s. And so I remembered that and I was like, ah, yeah. So someone has said, consider that maybe moderate exercise is, is, is enough, right? As opposed to some of these more extreme ones. So that was a small thing. Um, well, not small. That's actually very important. Um, but yes, it did as, again, as a non-procrastinator, I did start thinking ahead and I, and, and I did come to the conclusion after thinking about it for some years, I said, you know, just because some, just because some, I've been around the sun one more time and suddenly I'm 70 instead of 69 or whatever the age is going to be, why, why would I think that my interest in the space program would suddenly be like, okay, now I'm done. Right. And it would suddenly change because I went around the sun one more time. Right. And, and so I said, let's, let's make the assumption that there, that there becomes a time when your interest in the space program is, is still just as strong, but you're contributing differently. Right. You may not be at JPL anymore. And obviously that happens at a certain point, but or, you know, and then so then it becomes, again, about your philanthropic involvement. Right. So how do you how do you then contribute to the space program as you know, uh, as a when it's now more of your uh, it's more it's not your work anymore. And, and, and that has that's always a part of the equation in the sense that, you know, your spouse, your significant other may need, you know, may uh, you want move around for your uh, significant other's work. And so I think it behooves us all to always be aware of if the, the situation you're in right now changes, how can you continue to contribute in a way that will be, feel rewarding to you. Like you're doing something that matters while you're supporting your spouse or, you know, if the whole world suddenly goes remote, right. What ha- it, 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 it's, it's good to not always assume that the environment you're in is going to stay the environment you're in, just like we've all experienced in the last couple of years. We can't assume that the world stays the same. And, and so how do we contribute as the world changes around us. And that was our conversation with Nagi Cox. You can find out more about Nagi's career and her philanthropic work at her website, nagicox.org. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits, as well as additional production support by Michael Edland. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.